Glad you're here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the members here. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, which is on page 814 in the Bible that you've got there on the uh, row. If you want to follow along there, we'll also have the words on the screen. Um, and let me just start off by asking you guys this question. I don't know if you go through this exercise, but about every six months, how many of you guys go to the dentist? Perfect. One of my favorite ways to spend 40 bucks is having someone tell me that I'm not doing something well which is usually what I feel like going to the dentist is about, is them showing up and saying, hey, you need to take better care of your teeth and you need to floss. And so I go in and they clean my teeth and they tell me to do a better job. And I go, I know, I'm sorry, acknowledge my fault. Um, And then they give me one of those little plastic totes with the toothbrush and the toothpaste and the floss. And then they say, go up to the receptionist and she asks, when would you like to be corrected next? We've got availability on Friday six months from now, or, you know, Monday the week afterward. I think there's like six or seven of those little bags underneath the sink at home, and I really need to put them to use. I'm pretty sure my kids could use them for crafts. There's floss in there. I mean, they could make something from it. Um, All joking aside, I take good care of my teeth. It's really not a, a thing. But when it comes to flossing or taking care of your dental hygiene the way that your dentist would prefer that you do, I'm guessing that most of you know that it's something you should do, but you just don't. And if that's not you, maybe this resonates with you. What happens when you're at home and you go and you open up the trash can to put something inside and it is full to the brim? I mean, the outdoor trash can is like 100 feet away, right? What do you do? You push it down, put your trash in, and then you close it and go, not right now, okay? You should take the trash out, but you don't. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're the person who, who does this. If you do this, by the way, please don't admit, admit it because everyone in here will think less of you, okay? Maybe you're the person who goes to the grocery store and when you're done putting your groceries in your car, you see how far away the cart return is and you decide that little X where the four parking spots meet, you're just gonna park your car right there so that you can get in your car and leave and go home, Yeah? You know you should take your cart back and put it in the cart return, but it's too far away, and so you leave it right there. Or maybe you're a student, or you have been a student at one point, and you know that you have a test coming up on Friday, and it's Monday night. What are you going to do, right? Are you going to study and spread your workout over the course of the week, or are you going to do what most of us did when we were students and wait until Thursday night at 10 o'clock and then go, uh uh-oh. I better start getting ready, right? Procrastination. Um, Waiting until the last minute and then stressing out, trying to pound out the work right before it's due. There's lots of things in life, and we could go through a a list of a number of them. There's lots of things in life that we know we should do, but we just don't. And some of them are pretty trivial and minor, and some of them are a little bit more important. But I think in the church, one of the things that is a little bit less guilt-free for us when it comes to the statement, I know that I should, but I don't, is when it comes to our willingness to invest in time in the word, and when it comes to our willingness to open up our mouth and share the gospel with others. And so how does that connect to the scripture this morning? Well, this morning we're going to talk about evangelism, but I don't want to do that blind to the fact that for most of us, that's an area where we go, yeah, so about that, I You know, I know I should, but I just, I don't. And I believe this morning that that God does not want for you and me to walk away from here feeling guilty about our 
unwillingness or our lack of participation in sharing the gospel, but he wants us to see why this is a part of our life as those who've been bought and redeemed by Jesus and then choose to step into it out of obedience and joy because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's not just something that we go out and do as an exercise. Really, it's meant to be an extension of our life. And so with that, let's jump in this morning and we're gonna look at really three key things that I believe mark the outward-focused life from Matthew 9. Take a look at verse 35 with me. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. The first thing we'll see this morning about the outward-focused life is that it is the, the how. The how is that we live intentionally focused on every opportunity. So at this point in time in Jesus' ministry, as we're, we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, um, he's in the region of Galilee, which is kind of northern Israel, and he's traveling around. Um, and this little segment of the world, this little segment of the Roman Empire, Galilee, is about 1,600 square feet. And just a, uh, 1,600 square miles, that would be really small, um, 1,600 square miles. And just to give you kind of a, a comparison, the Houston metro area is about 10,000 square miles. So 1,600 versus 10,000. And if you got a little bit of Texas pride by me saying that, hoorah, very cool, right? So um, this is just this little pocket, this little area inside the Roman Empire. And, and what we see when we watch movies, videos, we see pictures of this time and Jesus's life and ministry. A lot of times you see these pictures of Jesus out on a hill or out in the countryside or walking a dirt road. But this little area of Galilee at this time in the Roman Empire had about 3 million people and 240 cities inside of it. And so it's, it's, yeah, there's times where he's walking around on the, the, the hills and the countryside and dirt roads, but this is also a densely populated area where there are elements of Greco-Roman culture like theaters and markets and main streets and libraries and homes and, and businesses. It's this little segment of the world where there's life and commerce and busyness and people just going about their lives every single day, not expecting to do anything but wake up care for their families, work, and hope to have some degree of a social life and engagement with others in the community around them. And that's important for us to remember because I think sometimes we can come to the Bible and go, well, yeah, that was back then, but this is now. And the reality is the world that Jesus is in in Matthew 9 is very much like the world we're in right now. It is full of people who are just waking up, going to work, doing life, taking care of their families in a densely populated area where they are building relationships and knowing people and just trying to make life happen. And I want you to notice in verse 35 that we see Jesus do three primary things as a part of his ministry of evangelism as he's in Galilee. First thing you see is that he teaches in the synagogue. The second is that he proclaims the gospel. And the third is that he heals people. So what's our takeaway from those things? The first thing I want us to see is that we should take the opportunity where we have a ready audience. We should take the opportunity where we have a ready audience. What do I mean by that? Look where it says Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. 
So when I was growing up, um, we lived in a master plan community out in Sugarland, and it was great because you could ride five minutes and be at the pool. You could, you know, ride your bike seven minutes and be at the soccer fields or the baseball fields. And they had this this place right in the middle of the neighborhood, and it was called the club. And the club is where everything happened. It's where the, the, the gyms were. It was where the workout facility was. It was where the pools were. It was where the baseball fields were. When you had an event in the neighborhood, you could go and rent rooms at the club. And so I remember in, in elementary school, middle school, my friends would have birthday parties at the club. School dances were held at the club. Um, elementary school, fifth grade graduation parties were held at the club. It was the place. It was the place where everybody got together and life happened. The synagogue in first century Israel is kind of like the club. It was the place where everyone would get together. They would read and learn in the Jewish community. They would worship. They would pray. Um, when there were cases to be tried, it was their court. Children would go there to learn the scriptures. You would hold events and other gatherings there. It was the place where the life of the community existed. And so if, if you see all of these little cities, most of them have a synagogue in them. And, and during these uh, synagogue meetings on the Sabbath, what would happen is the community would come together like we do here on Sunday morning. And someone would get up and they would read from the scriptures. And then a man in the congregation, it could be any man, would get up and would give a short sermon. And so Jesus, as he's going throughout Galilee, the reason it's so significant that he says he was teaching in their synagogues is that in the culture at this time, if you were a rabbi or you were a traveling teacher and you walked into someone's synagogue, it was a customary honor to say, well, we've got this rabbi in our midst. He's going to get up and he's going to give the sermon today. And so Jesus would walk into the synagogue, and immediately he had a ready audience. He had permission to speak, and he had people there who wanted to hear what the Bible had to say. He, you know, throughout Scripture, you see him showing up in the synagogue. You see in Luke 4, him showing up and reading from the scroll of Isaiah and saying, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Shortest sermon of all times. If we ever have like a, a one-sentence sermon in here, and then y'all get to break and go home, I mean, that's, that is the equivalent of it, right? So he would go in and he would communicate and teach and share these, uh, these scriptures with the people there. And so these were people who were familiar with the things of God but needed someone to say, hey, let me connect some dots for you because you believe this, you've heard this, but here is what this means. This is what I want you to understand, which is why you see Jesus say things like, you've heard it said this, but what? But I tell you this. You guys think you understand what it means to know God, but I'm here to tell you there's another chapter, right? So these were people who weren't going anywhere who he could walk in and have an immediate audience with. If we're gonna live intentionally, focused on opportunities, we as a church, we as people need to see where do we have a ready audience? Where do we have a ready audience who we don't have to work to have credibility with or where we have to earn the right to speak into their lives? Parents, if you've got kids at home, y'all have got unbelievers living in your home, your four-year-old doesn't need to ask you whether or not you've got permission to speak into their life about Jesus. They don't. You don't have to ask your, your kid if you can open up your mouth and communicate gospel truths to them. 
My nine-year-old loves to ask me theological questions at nine o'clock at night, right as I'm about to leave her room and go not parent anymore, right? That's my favorite thing in the world because all I want to do is be like, I love you. Can we just talk about this tomorrow morning? Please, for the love of Jesus, I'm done parenting. It's Friday night. The Astros are on. Like, stop, stop talking. Go to sleep, right? Not, okay, so that's just me. None of you all ever feel that way. I get it. Pray for me, right? No, but see, in that moment, you have to sit back and go, okay, here's an opportunity, right? My child is not going to ask me questions about Jesus forever without, without hesitation or worry or fear. She doesn't have baggage yet. She hasn't learned how hard and how cruel, and how difficult this world is. She has an ability to see Jesus and just treasure in the simplicity of her life that he loves her, right? I have an open door and a ready audience. I can sit down and talk about Jesus with my kids. Your teenagers, if you've got teenagers at home, may require some extra work. If your kids are grown and out of the house, you have influence. Not as easy to open up and be able to just say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about this thing. But you have influence, your friends who've known you for years and know, hey, if you're going to open up your mouth and say something that could potentially create some weirdness between us, I know that you still authentically love and care for me. You've got family members you're bound to, coworkers you've befriended, neighbors who you can count on, your kids, your spouse, a boss, nieces, nephews, people in the church who've grown up around the church, but the church has never been able to see the gospel of Jesus infiltrate their hearts and their lives. People who are in the church who would say, I don't know where I stand on Jesus. I just know I'm here. These are people in your life right now who are just like the people sitting in the synagogue and are just waiting for someone to stand up and say, hey, I know you believe this. I know you think this. Let me shed light on the mystery of Christ. That it would not be in the dark for you, but that you would see the light and the truth of the gospel. Not beat them over the head with theology, not guilt trip them, guilt trip them or chart out their sins and be like, here's all the ways that you have failed as a human being and need Jesus, but sit down and explain to them that we, left to our own devices, deserve nothing but the condemnation of God, but he, in his mercy, sent Jesus to us to live the life that pleased God that we could never live and die the death that we deserved on the cross, that we might be forgiven. So take the opportunity to speak to those who are a ready audience. We all have a ready audience. The second thing is this, be willing to share or sow seeds where you don't. So Jesus in verse 35, after it says he was teaching in their synagogues, it says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So when Jesus wasn't in the synagogue, he was traveling around about the city and about the countryside, and he would gather people together and say, hey, listen, there's a kingdom that's not of this world. You live in a world where there's a, an emperor, and there's a king, and they rule, and they declare, and they set what is true and what is right, but guess what? There's a kingdom that's not of this world, where God reigns and rules, and he declares what is right, and he declares what is true, and that kingdom is among you now, because the king is in your midst. 
And the message of the kingdom is trust in the king. Repent and turn from your sin and believe on the one whom God has sent because there is coming a day where he will reign and rule and those who have been found in him will be with him. Does that mean that every second of every day, Jesus walked down every street and every person he met, he opened up his mouth and shared the gospel to? Every person that, that encountered him was hearing the news of the kingdom? No. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's true. I don't think you can see that even here in the text. I don't think that's suggested. But what it means is that as he went, he found people who were willing to listen. He found people who were willing to listen, and he shared. Whether or not they did anything with what he said isn't the focus here. The focus is that he was willing. Sure, some of the people that he shared with followed him. Lots of others went on with their life without any consequence whatsoever. Think about the rich young ruler in Luke 19 who sits down and gets an awesome gospel message from Jesus, and what does he do? He turns away, and he goes home. No different. See, our call is not to influence and change what happens when we open up and share the gospel. Our call is to be willing to step in and share and sow seeds with those that God places in our path. Living intentionally focused on opportunities means, church, that we don't believe in chance, right? God doesn't work in a world of chance. You understand that, right? Proverbs 16, the lot is cast, but the Lord determines the outcome. Nothing that happens in this world happens by chance. And what that means is that your server at the restaurant isn't your server just by chance. Your neighbors who move in next to you are not your neighbors just by chance. When you get put on a new project at work and you get put together with people from a different team and there are people on that team that you don't know, that isn't just by chance. Your job in that moment isn't just to get the project done and then move on and high-five one another because you worked well together. Your children, your specific children with their bent, their sin, their personality, that didn't happen by chance. You being at Christ Community Church this morning didn't happen by chance. If you're a student at school, the students who are in your class, you think some counselor put together your schedule and your roster, God ordained that the people who are in your class and sitting in the seats next to you were in that class sitting next to you for that specific reason. Nothing happens by chance. So you may not have a ready audience because you may be among strangers. You may see people you've never encountered before. But Jesus, literally, as he went, when it says that he was proclaiming, it means he was heralding. He was casting the message out where he went to whoever was willing to listen because he knew there is a reason why today I'm walking down this path, and you're here. Nothing happens by chance, so be willing to share or sow seeds where you don't have a ready audience. And then we also see this in verse 35, that Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. What does that mean? Church, the reason Jesus did this was to, be, was to give um, credibility and authenticity to the message he spoke. You realize that, that Jesus, if he wanted to show people why they should listen to him, if, they wanted, if he wanted to prove why he was God, could have done any number of different things, right? He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have walked on water. He could have transfigured himself so people could see his glory. He could have looked at a goat and said, 
rock and turned a goat into a rock. That would have been awesome. Talk about a cool party trick, right? I mean, he could have done anything. But what does it say he chose to do? To authenticate his message and give credibility to his life as he went out and preached. He healed the sick, every disease, and every affliction. He earned the credibility, church, to speak freely to others because of the way in which he demonstrated compassion and care for those who were hurting. He went to those who were afflicted and diseased. And and keep in mind, in this culture, right, if you've got a disease that's communicable or visible, it's not just like, ooh, that's gross, right? In that culture, if you were sick and not well, you couldn't go to the temple and worship God. You were separated from the ability to commune with and worship God. So Jesus wasn't just coming in and going, dude, you got a little pus in that, that kind of weird thing on your face. Mm, you know, you might want to see a doctor. He healed it and restored them to a place where they could worship God freely. He restored them. The actions of his life gave him the credibility to speak into others. I think it's helpful for us to remember that, which is why the, the third thing I want us to see about living focused on opportunities, living intentionally, is that we should let the actions of our life give us credibility to speak to others. When you're not proclaiming the gospel to people who may or may not be willing to listen, when you don't have a ready audience, let the words of your mouth, the compassion of your heart, the way that you joke with others, the way that you show hospitality, the inconveniences you're willing to take on, the encouragement and patience that you offer to people, the tangible way that you meet needs, affirm that your life is markedly different because of the way that Jesus has loved and saved you. So that when you do open up your mouth and speak, people say, I want to hear what this guy, this girl, this student, this, this friend has to say. Because I know by their life, they don't play around. They've earned the right. If they're going to say something that might be difficult for me to hear, to do that, because I don't question their motives at all. Right? It's about letting our life back up the words that come out of our mouth. Now, no one is perfect in that. I know. I get it. If you ask some of, I mean, I work with, a, I, I work with believers. My entire office is full of believers. If you ask them, does Chris live this out on a regular basis, they would go, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes, most of the time. But there's some times where, you know, I need to rein it in, dial it in. Sarcasm for me is a, is a wonderful tool, and it is a horrible, horrible crutch, right? So, We're not perfect in this, but I think what's helpful for us to understand with regard to this is that we have to stop viewing our spiritual lives and our personal lives as two separate things and realize they are the same thing. Our personal lives and our spiritual lives are the same thing. So it will either confirm or convict us as to whether we are, as as, um, 3 John chapter 1 says, walking in the truth. Are we walking in the truth? Would people say that of our lives, that this person walks in the truth? The actions of their life, the momentum, the the movement of their life demonstrates an anchoring to something bigger than themselves. So we begin to build an outward-focused life at C3 by living 
intentionally, seeing opportunities, going, God, where have you given me an audience of people who are ready to listen? And when do you place people in my life? Because nothing is by chance where you've given me an ability to speak into someone's life. And how do I, in between those moments, so demonstrate that Jesus has loved and saved me that when I open up my mouth, people are willing to listen? Live intentionally. Focused on opportunities. Now let's take a look at verse 36. Verse 36 is gonna be the, the, the why for the outward focused life. This is why we ultimately do this. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he is Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The why this morning for the outward focused life is this, seeing people from a spiritual perspective. We do this because we have been called to see people from a spiritual perspective. What do I mean by that? Take a look back at verse 36 with me. As Jesus is going about these cities and these villages in Galilee, he amasses a following, and as he looks out on this crowd of people, he says of them, they are helpless and harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. I did a little bit of Greek study for you, and the word there in the Greek for harassed basically means mangled, beat up, tattered, or bruised. And the word for helpless there is the idea of being sprawled out on the floor, like my two-year-old likes to do sometimes when you don't put the banana in the bowl instead of giving it to her and sprawls out on the floor. It's just like, oh my goodness, life is not going to end, right? Um, So it's weird language to use, right? Here's a bunch of men and women, boys and girls. They're clothed. They have food to eat. They've got jobs. They've got homes. And as he's looking out among them, the words that he uses to describe him makes them sound like they came from a street fight where they got jumped in a back alley. Why does he use that language? It's because Jesus isn't looking at them from an external perspective. He is looking beyond the exterior to the condition of their souls. These are people who lived in a society where the religious leaders abused their power, made it impossible for people to worship God without giving money that they didn't have, set impossible standards around the law of God that were unfairly punishable. They're the ones, the religious leaders of the day, who said, uh, Jesus said of them in Matthew 23, you travel around the world by sea and land to make a convert, and as soon as you do, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. They look outwardly righteous, but they are full of lawlessness and hypocrisy. The reigning narrative of the day, if you were a Jew in Israel, that you heard from your religious leaders is you're not good enough, you're not clean enough, you don't possess the ability to please God, but no hope was offered. There's no hope offered. Their lives weren't easy either. Either Roman rule was not easy. Roman rule was hard. Work was difficult. Life was not full of the advancements and achievements that we enjoy today. You couldn't get fast food. You couldn't go to the grocery store. You didn't have modern medicine. You didn't have civil rights. You didn't have desk jobs. Children died. Spouses died. Tragedy and and troubles were common. It was a hard life. If any of us lived in that day and age, we would say, this is difficult. This is hard Is there any way for us to not have to live in this? I don't, I didn't sign up for this. Life was challenging. Even a good life by most standards to us would have felt like a trial. And instead of having the priests of God step in and say, hey, follower of God, don't lose heart. There's coming a day. 
God will make all things new. There's coming a day where he's going to redeem us as his people, where he's going to wipe away the pain. He's going to end the strife. Instead, what the religious leaders did was remind them of their guilt and their sin and provide no hope. And Jesus looks out on this group of people, and instead of looking at them and going, man, y'all are messy people, good night, he looks out on them, and he has this sense of deep compassion in his heart for them. Because though they may have looked well on the outside, deep on the inside, they were hurting. I want you to think about a group of people that you interact with on a regular basis. Right now, just think about it. Think in your mind, who's a group of people I interact with on a regular basis? It could be uh, your family at home. It could be a group of moms that you do school with. It could be your coworkers. Um, it could be neighbors or families on your kid's soccer team. I want you to think about them for a minute. My guess is that most of the people that you know and interact with seem to have it all together. My guess is most of the people you interact with seem to have it all together especially here in the Woodlands, Magnolia, Conroe area, right? We drive nice cars, we live in nice homes, we wear nice clothing, we go on nice vacations, we eat out at nice restaurants. What's the default answer that you get anytime you ask someone, how are they doing? What is it? Fine, I'm good. I'm fine, I'm good. Yeah, life's good, it's all right, we're doing good, we're fine. How many people do you think are actually fine and good all of the time. They're not, right? I would guarantee you, whatever group you're imagining in your mind that you interact with on a regular basis who, who, who are all doing good, among that group you've got people who are totally isolated and alienated in their home. They feel completely alone. I guarantee you in that group you've got people whose marriage is on the rocks, whose children disobey and won't listen and they have no idea what to do about it. You've got people who are worried about money and how they're gonna pay bills this next month. You've got people who live in simmering anger and frustration. You've got people who walk about in anxiety and depression that won't go away because the clouds won't lift even though you ask God to take them away. You've got people who are hiding in deep sin that's wrecking havoc on their souls. You've got people who've been told a lie at some point in their life about how God views them and that has informed the narrative in their mind of how God sees them and they can't shake it. They believe they're not good enough, they're not clean enough, they don't possess the ability to please God and they need people who are in the light to show up in their lives and say, awake, sleeper. The light of Christ can shine upon you. Wake up from the slumber. You're in the dark, but you don't have to be. This is not the way God intended for life to look. Believe in the mercy and richness of the kindness of Jesus. He may not make the pain go away. He may not make the clouds lift. He may not solve the problem at home. But you can anchor your soul to eternal hope. So that through that, you can fight well. And know that your hope is secure. Right? The gospel isn't about making everyone's life better. Gospel doesn't make life better. Sometimes, but it reminds us that our life is not circumstantial down here. Our life is hidden 
in Christ. Your life may still be hard, but you can throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus. Church, the people that God has placed in your life need you to see beyond their exteriors and see them with the compassion of Jesus from a spiritual perspective. That's the why. They don't need you to be nice and polite and Christian-y while you hope that they catch on. They need for us who have seen Jesus to feel the weight of eternity hanging on our souls and use that as motivation to open up our mouth and speak in areas where we don't have to ask permission to because we have a ready audience and in areas where we don't believe in chance but believe that God has placed us there for his kingdom and for his purposes. So we see people from a spiritual perspective. Final thing this morning about the outward focus life is this. This is the hope. We pray for action and not just salvation. Look at verses 37 and 38 with me. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If the first two verses of this passage were the example to follow, these are the power behind those first two verses. What do I mean by that? The first instruction is simple, pray. First instruction is simple, pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? Pray. Seeing people turn from their sin to faith in Jesus is first and foremost, before any actions take place, a spiritual work. You and I cannot save anyone. We're no one's savior. God alone can redeem the lost and save someone. We're not gonna become more outward focused as a church. We're not gonna become more outward focused as individuals until we recognize and realize that this is a spiritual work and so we must pray. And I would tag onto that. If spiritual work feels foreign to you because you don't live in a world where you work on the spiritual aspect of your life, you will not be compelled to pray. And so we've gotta be people of the word who are not uncomfortable or unforeign to listening to the Spirit of God and hearing from the Spirit of God and believing the truth of the Scripture. So we've got to pray, pray earnestly. To whom do we pray? The Lord of the harvest. Why does that matter? Because God is for the harvest. You get that? He's the God of the harvest. God is for the harvest. His intention is to draw men and women and children to himself because that's who he is. He is the Lord of the harvest. He's the master and authority and lover and director of the harvest. The work of reaching out to others is not something we do in isolation. It's not something that God intends to fail in. But he uses you and I for that work, and he loves that work. He does not intend for us to fail in it, so we can be confident that as we go about that, he is for us and with us. But watch this. What do we pray to the Lord of the harvest? We pray this. Send out laborers into the harvest. Do you know when the New Testament speaks about praying for salvation, it almost never involves praying for God to save someone. You can see some of that in Romans 10. Paul shows up and says, my prayer for my brothers, the Jews, is that they would be saved. When you see prayer for salvation happening in the New Testament, you see things like pray that a door would be open to us. Pray for boldness. Pray that we would have the opportunity to speak. Pray that the sharing of your faith would be effective. Pray that the word of the Lord 
would go before us. Jesus doesn't say that we should pray for God to harvest people. God says, Jesus says that we should pray that the Lord would send laborers into the harvest. The instruction is not to pray, God, save my little brother. God, save my best friend. The prayer is, God, send someone to save my little brother. Send someone to save my best friend. There need to be laborers to go out into the harvest. God, send someone. John MacArthur makes an interesting point about this verse. He says, if all you're doing is praying for a person to be saved, you can keep them at arm's length. But as soon as you start praying for the Lord to send a person, you're, pretty, you're going to pretty soon feel like maybe you're the person who ought to go. And that leads you from intercession to involvement. It's the final step in getting out of our box and our bubble and being intentional about using the opportunities that God gives us to see people from a spiritual perspective and to trust him enough to be the one to go and proclaim the hope that we have because of Jesus. So what do we do with that today? Let me put some training wheels on this for you and then we're done. Halloween is coming up, a couple of weeks. Whether or not your family does Halloween or not, it is one of the only times a year, other than maybe 4th of July, where people will come out of their house after five o'clock in the evening and talk to other individuals, right? Like the garage door will open up and people will actually exist outside of their home. Get to know the people around you. Maybe the Lord opens up an opportunity for you to share something more than a fistful of candy. Maybe he doesn't. If you see a family, see other families in your neighborhood that have kids your age, maybe that's where you start praying, Lord, help me to find this person, to see this person. Maybe that's your next play date. Um, maybe that's a new family to invite over and get to know. Maybe you finally learn your neighbor's names next door to you, and they're not just the person who drives the green Chevy Silverado. I don't, I don't know their name, right? Maybe you see needs on your neighborhood Facebook page or on Nextdoor. Offer to meet them. Last-minute babysitting, helping out with a project. If people are griping about their yards needing to be mowed or trash needing to be picked up or there's a project going on in the neighborhood, get some people together and fix the problem. If you know someone who's moving into the neighborhood be the, be the one to go over and bring them a plate of cookies or a plate of brownies. Offer to bring them dinner. Give them a gift card to Chili's and say, hey, look, I don't know what you need, but I know that your boxes are probably not unpacked yet. Hey, dinner's on us. We love you. Welcome to the neighborhood. We live just over here. If you all need anything, just let us know. We want you to feel like you've got people who know you and care about you in this neighborhood. Maybe someone new comes into the office or someone comes into your class at school that's new. Make a priority to get to know them. Invite them to lunch. Make it an awkward first date. It's super awkward, right? It's more awkward for them than it is for you. If you're the one who does the inviting, you get to be the one that asks the questions, right? If someone in your life doesn't know the Lord and you've been praying for them, start praying that the Lord would send someone to that person and see if he doesn't put your heart in a position where you feel called to go and share the gospel with them. If you know that someone is experiencing need or hardship, step into that need or hardship and help them. Pray with them and for them. They could be in your community group. They could be in your office. They could be in the church. Step in and help. Begin to pray that God would help you see the opportunities that he's given you every single day to reach out and share the truth of the gospel. And if you know that this is an area in which you need to grow or want to grow and you're nervous and you don't know what that looks like, ask for help. I guarantee you that Seth would love for you to walk into his office. I hope your calendar's free, man. I'm just gonna 
assume you're gonna have some availability. If you wanna grow in this area or if you've got people that you know in this moment this morning, God, it's time for me to do something to communicate the gospel to this person and you don't know what to do. Call that man, call me. Talk to our elders here and say, help me understand how to do this well. I'm afraid it's gonna be awkward and I wanna make it not awkward as much as I can control that. I want it to be helpful. I believe Jesus' heart for this church is not that we would be a group of people whose stance toward the gospel is, well, I know that I should, but I don't. But instead, that we would become people who say, we do this because of what he has done for us. Let's pray. King Jesus, you're good. Your goodness is displayed to us each and every day as we think about Jesus coming to live the life that we couldn't live and dying on the cross in our place for our sins, that we might have eternal life. Father, you didn't promise us an easy life, but you did promise that you would be with us until the end of the age. You didn't promise that you would solve all of our problems, but you promised us a counselor who would be in us and with us. You didn't promise that this life would be full of of happiness and ease and comfort. But you did promise us that you guarantee that the place to which you are going, you are preparing a room for us, that we might be with you where you are. May we have such steadfast hope in that and belief in the goodness of what you've done for us to love us and to save us, that we would look out among the people that we live and that we work on a day-in and day-out basis, and we would long, King Jesus, that others would know that as well. Help us rewrite the narrative in our heart and our mind that says we can't share, we won't share, we don't know how to share, we're inadequate, we've failed, we haven't been a good enough witness, I don't know what to say, with a confidence that you will be with us as we go and that you are the Lord of the harvest, and you don't intend to fail in that. We worship you because in your goodness and kindness, you chose to save us. Give us a passion and a love this week for those around us, we pray. Amen.